All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 12. We're also going to do a short stint in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, just, just really quickly. Uh, so if you want to put a thumb in that, but it's really easy to find Genesis 1, right? You just flip to the front of your Bible. So Matthew chapter 12, my sophomore year of college, um, my, uh, my stepmom's dad, so my step-grandfather was diagnosed with lung cancer. He'd been a smoker his whole life, and uh, things, things weren't looking good. And so in, in this really amazing turn of events, my, my step-grandfather was never a believer. That's not anything he grew up doing. He never went to church. And uh, with that diagnosis came a life change for him, and he gave his life to Jesus and uh, got baptized at like 78 years old. A wonderful, amazing story. I'll never forget watching my granddad get baptized. Um, but things took a turn for the worse, and uh, about halfway through my first semester of sophomore year, he, he passed away. Now, Tennessee does this really weird thing. I've learned that there's just there's weird culture surrounding um, like death and burial, and everywhere has different cultures. So Tennessee has this really weird culture where what you do is uh, the family all comes to the local funeral home, they prepare the body, and the body sets in this really fancy-looking room, and you dress up nice, and you will sit in that room for like two or three days, and people will come by, and they'll visit, and they'll talk, and they'll look at the body, and they'll have conversation, and then usually at the end of the three days, you'll do a funeral, and you'll bury the body and move on. But it, it was always weird, because that not, that's not something that's ever happened since I've been in New Mexico. Families haven't done that. But in Tennessee, it was every time I have memories of we have to go to the funeral home to visit this family and do visitation. It was just a, a normal thing. Now, for me in that situation, I still had homework to do. And so what happened usually is people would bring family, and in the basement of the funeral home, at least in McMinnville, Tennessee, they had this kind of little cafeteria-style place and this, everything that people brought. So I'd sat down in this old kind of repurposed diner booth, and worked on my sermon, not sermon, but my homework at the time. And I'll never forget uh, that day, the pastor of my dad's church, about 10 o'clock that morning, just walked in. He sat down across from me in this old repurposed diner booth and pulled open his laptop and just said, do you mind if I hang out with you and work on my sermon while you do homework? I was like, no, not, not at all, Pastor Gary, that would be great. And he ended up sitting there for probably about five hours that day. We didn't talk much. But we had a couple conversations, and he asked me how school is and what my homework was over, and I asked him what he was preaching over. And it's funny looking back how little of a thing it was. Five hours on a day that he could have sat in the office, he chose to sit across the table from me. Very little conversation, nothing profound, no statements that I remember being, wow, this is incredible. But an event that I will never forget. And as I proceeded into ministry, having that as an anchor in my mind of, that's the type of pastor I, I really want to become one day. Because what I learned in that moment is that the ministry of community is actually not done here. It's done in the basement of a funeral home across an old diner table with no words being said other than, do you mind if I work on my sermon while I sit across from you? Because that was his way of stepping into my world and saying, Philip, I'm here. You see, I think so often when we talk about church and community, we end up overcomplicating what that's supposed to look like. We think that community best happens in large groups and in events and in crowds. And so if we can get the numbers and we can draw the crowds, then we've done a good job doing church community. And while I understand that there's definitely formative and great things that happen in congregational worship, and while I'm very grateful for the events of church camp and mission trips that my church took me on and all of these wonderful things, I begin to look around and realize that 
really it's the simplicity of someone coming and setting a cross for me after losing my grandfather that spoke volumes. And when I look at the heart of Jesus and his intention to build a new community, that's what that pastor did for me 12 years ago. It aligns exactly with what Jesus' vision for a community is in Scripture. But to see that clearly, I think we have to dig under the surface of some of the more obscure teachings of Jesus. So let me start off, Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak with him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to the one who was speaking to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching his hands out towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now I think sometimes we read this in a couple ways. So we read it and we think, ah, Jesus is kind of obscure. I don't understand it. And we just go on to the next story. But if you dwell on it too long, right, you come to this conclusion that Jesus is being like insensitive at best and downright rude at worst, right? I mean, just a green perspective, there's the word I'm looking for, right? What if right now, like the guy that's at security, whoever's back there, just came up and said, hey, Philip, sorry to interrupt, but uh, your mom and your sisters, they're all the way here from Nashville. They just showed up and they want to speak with you. And I was like, who's my mom and my sisters? These are my mom and my sisters, you guys would probably kind of question my integrity a little bit. Like, really? Like, go talk to your mom. She flew in from Nashville. It's probably some big deal. Why are you still here? What's Jesus doing? How do we make sense of this? Has the compassionate friend of sinners suddenly become heartless and insensitive and rude? Or is there something more profound? Now, hopefully, over the last few months, you've, you've come to understand that when Jesus says something that's seemingly hard, there is always something far more profound under the surface. Jesus is far more brilliant. He's far more intelligent than what we even can begin to recognize and understand. So what is Jesus doing? We have to remember, number one, Jesus does not teach in a vacuum. Meaning, what Jesus is doing is not just this one-off sermon, but it's this that's tied to everything else that he has done and everything else that he will continue to do. And you have to understand that when Jesus is teaching, what Jesus foresees himself doing is taking the entirety of the Old Testament and folding it into himself, right? Hence the phrase in the Sermon on the Mount, for I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he'll say things like, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and it's the Hebrew idea of the Tanakh, the entire Hebrew Old Testament. Jesus says, you cannot separate that from what I am doing. So if we're ever going to rightly understand Jesus, it demands we understand the Old Testament. So what might that clue us in on that we can make sense of what Jesus is trying to do in a rural house in northern Israel 2,000 years ago? And with that, let me take you back to Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins with a rather interesting first few phrases. You're probably very aware of it by this point, but it just starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
in the three opening sentences of Scripture, we find this really curious mystery of the main character of the Bible. And that's just a good thing to remember. We are not the main character of the Bible. God is the main character of the Bible. Okay, so hold on to that. So we're introduced to the main character from sentence one, but it's a very mysterious kind of interesting invitation to be explored from here. There's one single God, the Elohim, who creates the heavens and the earth, verse one. But then there's this distinct separation in verse two as the spirit of the Elohim fills and permeates creation. The spirit who is also the Elohim, singular created God, but a creator God, but also distinct from the creator God. And then in verse 3, there's this creative agent of the, of the Elohim through his spoken word. God does not have to say, let there be light. God just simply has to think and it exists. That's the power of our God Almighty. But yet he chooses to speak into existence. So there seems to be Elohim. Elohim the spirit, Elohim the spoken word, all one unified creator God, but yet three key distinctions. Page one introduces a God in this incomprehensible mystery that is one singular God acting as three distinct persons. One God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's not just a fun factoid to hold on to. That's something that really matters and helps to distinguish us from other religions. And I think the only one that actually gives the true reality of an all-being, all-loving, all-creator, all-knowing, all-powerful God. It has to be triune. So the revelation of this being that God is, at the core of his person and his image, communal. And God is, at the core of his person and core of his image, community. God is a perfectly unified relationship of mutual love and submission from God the Father to God the Son to God the Holy Spirit to God the Father to God the Holy Spirit to God the Son. Do you see what I mean here? So if you start with that, page one introduces this God in an incomprehensible mystery, but then you jump down to verse 27, and God says this in the pinnacle of his creation. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. At the crescendo moment of creation, God makes the final creation unique. Unlike anything else, humanity made in his image. And then God sends forth humanity purpose to act like him. In other words, go make community. Establish perfect, unified relationships of mutual love and submission in the world around you. Create an earthly image of the heavenly Father. This is what God is calling humanity to do in Genesis chapter 1. Of course, if you know the story in Genesis chapter 3, things go belly up. And there's this breakdown. We find the story of how quickly things move from creation to corruption as the serpent chips away at Eve's trust in God and convincing her that God, God's holding out, Eve. You can't really trust him. No, you need to seize what seems right for you. You define good and evil for yourself. You take the fruit. You make it about yours. It's all about your control. Eve believes the lie, she acts on it, and Adam follows. 
And then we get to chapter 3, verse 7 and verse 8. After they eat, after they ate, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Do you notice the consequences? That sin shatters both horizontal relationship, that's this way, horizontal relationship and vertical relationship. You see, often we tend to focus on the vertical separation of sin. In the modern church, that's been the kind of bread and butter of everything we press for. That's when we present the gospel. It's generally going to be something along the lines of, you've sinned, your sin has separated you from God, but Jesus dies on the cross to bridge that gap vertically and restore you back to the Father that you might spend eternity with him in heaven, be forgiven of your sins. And that is the gospel. But if all we see is a gospel that heals vertically and we miss a gospel that heals horizontally, we have missed a vital part of what the Bible sees Jesus coming and doing. Sin is both vertical and it's horizontal. Sin is a good and loving creator who suddenly becomes distant and difficult to know and trust. And sin is an attack by this particular group of people on this particular group of people. And sin is the racism in society that I can't like that person because they look like and act like and think like someone that's not like me. It's that falling out you had with a friend. It's treating your personal need for acceptance by gossiping about the problems of someone else. Sin is that incognito mission you go on in Walmart when you see that one person you really don't want to talk to because that one thing happened and so you dip and dive and duck behind other types of aisles so that you don't have to, you know what I'm talking about. Sin is the breakdown in the image and blessing of God that distinguished humanity as the unique creation of God. Sin is the corroding of community. So the story goes on in chapter 4 to talk about how quickly this horizontal breakdown leads to death and destruction as Cain murders his brother Abel. And that's a story that's going to get perpetuated out through brotherly and sibling rivalry until it folds out into a national rivalry. And we find Israel versus Egypt, Israel versus the Philistines, Israel versus the Canaanites, and on and on and on and on it goes. And culturally speaking, as that divide begins to break out and branch outward, loyalty attempts to then turn itself inward. So that by the time we get to the first century world, the Jewish historian Josephus writes a lot about the relationship of family and its vital role within culture. You see, for Josephus, blood is thicker than any other relationship, and it, it, is even, it isn't even close. There was no cultural sin in Jesus' day greater than turning your back on your brother or your sister. No situation ever gave you permission to do so. And so Josephus would write in critique to political people of the time because they were doing this very thing. So here's what he said about Cleopatra, someone that he really disliked for some reason. Here's one of his writings. Cleopatra's success is at the cost of her kindred. Well, let me just read the quote. Her success is at the cost of one's kindred, and it's her fatal, fatal flaw seen in the treachery of killing her own brother and sisters. It's Josephus saying this is how bad she is, and the worst, most unimaginable crime she could commit was killing brother and sister. That's, that's Josephus' worldview. 
Or, or he also tells the story of Archelaus. So Archelaus, if you'll remember back in Matthew chapter 2, uh, Herod is going to lay siege to all the firstborn, or the young babies in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph and Jesus flee to Egypt. Uh, once Herod dies, they come back only to find that a new king, Herod's son Archelaus, has taken the throne and was even worse. And so they have to retreat even further north back up to Nazareth where they were originally from. Uh, but Josephus writes about Archelaus. The Jewish people really particularly hated Archelaus. And so one of the things they did was they formed a commission and they went to Caesar and they pleaded to Caesar himself, hey, this king is horrible, you need to get him out. Archelaus was so bad, not a single person would go to the defensive stand for him. So he had to go represent himself in front of Caesar in Rome. While he was gone, uh, the Jewish people then staged a coup to try to overthrow uh, the kingship. This is Josephus' history. Um, they, they stage a coup to try to overthrow his throne and establish their own leader. Um, so Rome has to come in and put a stop to that coup. But Archelaus was so bad, Caesar Augustus looks at it and says, look, I kind of understand why you guys did it, so you're off, the, you're off the hook. Don't worry about it. Except for anyone that was blood-related to Archelaus, anyone that was blood-related as a part of the coup, they were put to death without trial. Because that's how evil it was seen to betray a blood relative at that time. There's other stories about the Herod before, that when Herod was caught between a bind between his wife and sister, he put his wife to death for the sake of his sister. And this is unimaginable to us. But understand, this is the world that Jesus grows up in. For Jesus, the tightest bond of his culture is not marriage, it is not a place where romantic love triumphs. Most marriages, if not all marriages, were just established for familial relationship anyways, and you didn't pick who you got to marry. It was commissioned to you by your parents. This is who you marry. In Jesus' world, it was profoundly familial in a way that's really foreign and hard for us to grasp. But what's interesting is Jesus actually doesn't seem to see the idea of sibling and blood loyalty being the chief model of unity. In fact, when he sends out the 12, if you can just go back a few chapters from Matthew 12 to Matthew chapter 10, when he sends out the 12 disciples and he begins to teach them about what it's going to be like when they go and do the things that he does, he'll say things like chapter 10, verse 21. He'll say, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. See, it seems that Jesus sees what he's doing as a direct challenge to the status quos of his culture. It's not a commentary suggesting that familial relationships are bad, but Jesus sees his kingdoms and all of its priorities in direct conflict to the pre-existing loyalties of his day. And I would just extend that to say Jesus still sees his kingdom in contrast and conflict with the pre-existing loyalties of our culture. That Jesus expects us to come to him, lay it all down at the foot of the cross, and let him redefine how everything functions. So then in chapter 10, he jumps down to verse 34, and Jesus says this. Don't assume that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn man against father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be members of his own household the one who loves a father or a mother more than me is not worthy of the me and the one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me 
how on earth can it be that the God who gave one of the big ten commandments of honor your father and mother can step into time, take on flesh, and then utter something like this? Because the issue isn't your mom or dad or your brother or sister. It's the reality that Jesus expects you to surrender every loyalty you have over to him so that he can rewire and rewrite it. See, in his culture, that just so happened to be familial relationships were the main loyalties. So Jesus is ripping apart the fabric of his culture, not to deconstruct it, but to reconstruct it into something even more beautiful. So if you go one page over, we're back to that rural living room. But knowing this history of who God is, what he commissioned humanity to be, the result of the fall, and Jesus' redemption narrative of what he's trying to do, what is Jesus communicating in Matthew chapter 12? What is he endorsing, and what is he defying? Well, I think right off the top, as we read through this and we begin to see what Jesus is trying to do, we have to know that Jesus is defying cultural traditions and cultural loyalties. Jesus, as the oldest brother, now there's, there's, the Bible doesn't exactly say this, but most scholars agree, there's a consensus, that uh, Joseph doesn't show up in the story anywhere after Jesus is about 12, the implication being Joseph probably died, uh, hence why Jesus was so keen on reaching out to orphans and widows, and that's such a big thing because that's probably his own life. But in that time, as the firstborn son, if your dad was to die, it was culturally mandated that you step into that role of leader, defend the family honor, take the family name, and do everything you're supposed to do. Jesus is supposed to pick up the mantle. There is nothing more important. So if you think Jesus is being rude, it's way worse. It is contextually appalling. There would have been gasps in the room as Jesus said something like this. But remember... Jesus defies to reconstruct. So in defying, he endorses. Who's my mother and father? No, here to my disciples are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Jesus is reconstructing a new family where the closest social bond is not blood, but commitment to the will of the Father. Jesus sees what he's doing as the birth of a new family line in a world to suggest family was anything other than blood, in a world that to suggest anything other than blood was scandalous. See, today that's really hard for us to grasp because the concept of family is just an overused trope. Right? You go to the Greyhound football game, they're like, E&MU family, welcome to, and I'm like, well, sure, but that's, to, to call the people in the football stadium a family is a little loose, right? Or, or those few people you live with during college, like, we're a college roommate family. We use it like that. We, we are a family of coworkers. Family has been applied to just the shallow parts of relationship today. So we'll say, you know, the sports team that you like, you're a family. You and your roommates, it's a family. The, the place you work, that's a family. But without that deep, unchanging, comp uncompromised understanding of family instilled into the first century world, we struggle to grasp what Jesus 
is wanting to build. And what we end up doing is we miss out on what Jesus wants to do salvation with salvation. And we limit to just a vertical reality and not a horizontal reality. You see, contrary to what most people believe, did you know the words personal savior? Or did you receive Jesus as your personal Lord? Or do you have a personal relationship? That's nowhere to be found in the Bible. The, the words personal savior, personal relationship, those aren't in scripture. Now that's not to say there is not a personal relationship started at salvation, but it's to say when Jesus envisions what he's doing, conversion is not just birth, rebirth into relationship with God, it is rebirth into a new family. You cannot receive God without receiving us. And it's usually the receiving us that we get a little bit more fickle about. I love what N.T. Wright says about this. He says, the only explanation for Jesus, uh, for Jesus' astonishing command, is that he envisioned loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. Jesus bridges the gap both vertically and horizontally. That at the gospel, there is horizontal restoration because sin is a two-part divide. Jesus' salvation is a two-part reunification. So Jesus' horizontal restoration, here's kind of the main idea of this. Jesus' horizontal restoration must move us beyond an idea of position to an idea of relation. Jesus' horizontal restoration must move us beyond position to relation. You see, I think so often we usually are pretty good at understanding our place with God positionally. You know, we'll say and sing things like, I'm a child of God. I'm forgiven by the king. I've made into a new creation, given a new birth. All of that is true. And if you don't know that, man, like, please come talk to me. Salvation is available. Forgiveness is offered and granted. You can be restored, given purpose, redeemed, set free. That is the offer that Jesus has brought you. But if we stop there and we go on to treat one another like church business partners with our main goal being to organize a Sunday service with a sprinkling of events throughout the year, then we miss Jesus' vision for what he wants his church to be. So here's a quote from Joseph Hellerman who, who wrote this book I was talking about. He says this, American evangelicalism is a community in crisis. And it will remain such as long as we fail to recapture the biblical understanding of salvation as a community-creating event. This is exactly what Jesus said. That salvation has to be seen here before anyone ever sees it here. They will know you are Christians by your... That's Jesus. So how do we go about doing this? Acts chapter 4, and this is where we will resolve today. Acts chapter 4, Pentecost has happened. Thousands have come to faith. But instead of going home to their prospective towns, they stay in Jerusalem to learn more about what this whole movement is about. And as Luke is writing about this, he says this in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed any of his own possessions that were his own, but instead held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were given testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. 
So there was not a needy person among them because all of those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as they had need. Now before you freak out and think you need to go put your house on the market, this was the early church's definitive way of pressing against the social fabric of their world order in order to act like a new family unit. This was the model that made them such a curious anomaly in the early Roman world that outsiders couldn't help but explore what was going in on the inside of those little house churches week after week, where widows and orphans were cared for where the poor were given food and where sick were tended to, the small blood family units was ripped apart and then re-stitched together into this huge quilt more beautiful than anyone had ever seen before. They saw their status won by the blood of Jesus both positionally, vertically, and relationally, horizontally. Now this is exactly what we're going to focus on all year next year. So if you don't like it, It's going to be a bad year for you because all next year is all about how do we do this in relationship? How do we link together to live as a church in the vision that Jesus has the church to live in? See, we've come to a point where it's not only communities, but even families that are being ripped apart and and loneliness is running rampant. And might it be if we somehow found a way to provide a true, loving, supporting community in the midst of an environment that is that broken, that Portales might actually see something and say, I gotta see what's going on over there. But for now, if selling everything and sharing it for the sake of community was the unimaginable model that made the early church a curious anomaly for true family, what is our definitive way of acting like a true family today? Three things that I'll just close with, three, three thoughts that I think we have to commit to if we want to make this work. First one is just time. A lot of studies have shown uh, that the best way to instill empathy into people or the people that have the most empathy are people that read novels. And it seems like, according to psychology, that watching movies or watching TV shows don't instill the same amount of empathy as someone who reads regularly instills. And the question is, well, why might that be? And the best kind of consensus that uh, psychologists have come up with is that in order to read a book, you have to commit to it. You have to pour time into the book. You have to come and show up to those characters every day and read a little bit and take another step with them. And it's that action of committing time to other people that actually creates empathy within a unit. And I would say that it's no different within church. If the only relationship you have with the people in here are in the short hour you have on Sunday morning and in the 30-second sporadic conversation you have before service starts or after service ends, you will not, we will not be the community God desires us to be. It actually demands time. And you might say, Philip, I don't know if I have time for that. But I would just say, if Jesus is ripping apart the fabric of his world, maybe it's time we rip apart the fabric of our own busyness and figure out what it means to commit time together. If we want to be a church that does horizontal relationship correctly, it will demand time. The second thing I would just say is house. So so time, and, and by house I mean apartment or dorm, whatever it is that you live. But our doorstep is often one of the most impenetrable barriers in our world. Right? Because when the door-to-door salesman comes and knocks on your door, how far do you open it? 
What do you want? Or, or even now, we have the ring door camera, so we don't even open the door. We just get on the ring and we say, excuse me, what are you doing on my front porch? Like, we are very skeptical of people that would approach the front door of our house. There is something sacred about that to us. If we want to see community happen horizontally, it demands a pass-through of that barrier to have conversations on couches and to eat meals across dinner tables. There's something unique only found on the inside of your house that cannot be replicated elsewhere. And then the third one I would say is just leisure. Just remember that families are not often governed by formal events. Sure, there are time and places when it's planning vacations or family reunions, but far more of the glue of family relationship is the afternoon spent playing board games or the shared movie night. It's family that leisures together. If our only relationship is to sit down and go over financial reports and to sit down and think about strategy, and we never actually have the time to sit down and leisure together, we will not have the horizontal relationship Jesus talked about. We have to find time. We need to try to do it in houses, and it needs to be just for the fun of being together. And if we can't do that, why does anyone else ever want to come here? If we can't do that, what are we inviting people to? Hey, come sit in a pew every Sunday and listen to a guy talk for too long. There's something more that Jesus has invited us to. So we have seven weeks until the end of this year. Seven weeks, then it's the end, and we're going to push into this as hard as we can next year. But just for now, if Jesus has redeemed us horizontally, how do we live into it? How do you live into it? because Portalis deserves to see what Jesus has redeemed, both vertically and horizontally. So how do you respond? Father God, we come to you and think through this, this promise that you've given us, that you're a God who redeems vertically and horizontally. And God, I pray that you would instill into this church that very heart of reconciliation. Because God, we want desperately Portalis to see the vertical restoration of a God come to redeem. But God, we know that that must first be displayed in our horizontal reactions to one another. And God, while we know that doesn't mean things will be perfect or that even things will be easy, we know your vision and we want to commit ourselves to it. Give us a heart to commit vertically to you and horizontally to each other. Let that be our story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to pray, I'll be up here. If you want to respond by talking to someone else, this is your chance to trust what God's calling you to do.